0: And he asked Chris if he, know what's that, if he knows what's that. Uh, sorry, I just. Uh, sorry. Uh,
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and I'm Todd Mack. This week we are going to be talking about the townspeople of Sicily, Alaska from the TV show Northern Exposure. We'll be talking about the episodes Aurora Borealis, A Fairy Tale for grown-ups, which is the eighth and final episode of the first season and was written by Charles Rosen and directed by Fred Gerber. We're also discussing The Big Feast, the 21st episode of the fourth season that was written by Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green and directed by Rob Thompson. Okay, listeners, this is going to end up being a little bit like our Princess Bride episode where we ended up talking about every character some. So to help us know who we're talking about, I'm going to be reading a little bit from an article that is called Magical Realism, Northern Exposure 25 Years Later that does a little retrospective on it. And this article was written by Brian Doan, and he does a really good one-sentence breakdown of each character. Um, So I'm going to read some about that. So in this, we have a young doctor from New York uh, named Joel Fleischman, who's played by Rob Morrow, who goes to Alaska to fulfill his medical school loan obligations, the state has paid for his training. We also have uh, Chris Stevens, who's played by John Corbett, an ex-con philosopher who is the sole DJ at KBHR, <laughs> the town's sole radio station, and the radio station owner is Maurice Minifield, played by Barry Corbin, a wealthy, pompous, bigoted astronaut hero with dreams of turning Sicily, Alaska, into the Riviera of the Northwest, Holling <laughs> Vincour who's played by John Cullum, a kindly 63-year-old bar owner, and Shelley Tambo played by Cynthia Geary, his wide-eyed 20-year-old ex-beauty queen paramour. <laughs> and and Holly Vancore is very concerned that he's going to outlive his 20-year-old wife <laughs> because
0: his family has a longevity gene. <laughs> aren't they aren't they married? Yeah, they're married. Okay, cuz she goes by yeah. Tambo Vancore in the In the later episode, they get married during the show. Oh, okay. They're
1: not not married at the very beginning. But uh, Holling is very hesitant to marry her because he knows he's going to outlive her. (laughs) He's Um, an older guy. Yeah, he's he's in his 60s and she's 20. But his family has a longevity gene, as he mentions many times. (laughs) Uh, There's Marilyn Whirlwind, played by Elaine Miles, who um, is... As, as it says, a, a Greek course to Fleishman's many missteps, but she only does it with her expressive facial <laughs> expressions. Like She's, she's just, so good. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and Ruth Ann Miller is uh, the 70-something shop owner who has seen everything, yet somehow remains one of the program's least cynical characters. And then there's also Ed Chigliak, who's played by Darren E. Burroughs, a young Native American filmmaker and budding cinephile, and Maggie O'Connell, played by Janine Turner, the gross point Uh, Michigan refugee whose relationship with Fleischman forms the backbone of the series. So those are the characters that we'll be talking about. Um, Some hints about what comes, uh, you know, came from that, this like the, just the quick premise of Northern Exposure. It is the uh, big city, New York doctor that goes to a very small town in Alaska and the crazy people that he meets there. So Todd, how did you first come to Northern Exposure?
0: I was aware that Northern Exposure existed um, I'm pretty sure I was aware of the premise of the show, but I've never seen an episode until this week and i watched the <laughs> I watched the pilot, I watched episode two, and then I skipped uh to these two episodes that we've discussed, and it's a lot of fun it's <laughs> I always pictured it as like a twenty minute sitcom like if i if I had to put it in a category before, I would have put it in with like Seinfeld. And Everybody Loves Raymond, like that kind of a sitcom. And it's not. It's no. not at all that. Uh, these are long one-hour episodes. Uh, they're deeply like, philosophical and kind of, kind of complicated stories, uh, but really fun. Yeah,
1: um, I knew about this because my parents, who are actually the patrons who requested that we do this episode, so thank you, Joe and Kay, uh, they loved Northern Exposure when it was first on the air, and um, they had a VHS tape (laughs) of one of of their favorite episode, which is one of the two that we're talking about, The Big Feast, Uh, and I saw that, and then when I was in college and TV seasons on DVD became a thing... I bought the first few seasons of Northern Exposure just because my parents had praised it so much, and I was studying film and and popular culture at the time, and that was when I actually started watching it through. And much like you, I was surprised how much depth there is, <laughs> like thematic depth to each episode, yeah. where they're they're working with, uh, you know, each storyline is actually dealing with something, uh, even if you don't realize it. Uh, you know, the it's the kind of care that the best TV shows have. I like what you said about how uh you can kind of think of this as a comedy but it's it's not a sitcom you know it's the hour long this in the early 90s is when this first appeared and it kind of is a wave of the first generation of kind of dramedies like the hour-long non it's not gonna have a laugh track like a sitcom but we're starting to break away from the pretty rigid uh genre uh divisions uh that define television from the 50s 60s 70s and even into the 80s uh
0: this is part of a wave of shows that started to break that down a bit It's really sophisticated, I think, is the word. that One word that maybe we could use to describe this. This is the use of music and the character development. It's it's pretty sophisticated storytelling.
1: Mm -hmm. And listeners, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist, where over 180,000 titles await you for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. If you still have one from
0: 1995.
1: (laughs) Yes uh some trivia about this uh the show only ran for six seasons um i've actually only seen the first four seasons because really? the, beh- the behind the scenes producing and writing staff changed uh between the fourth and the fifth season and i've always heard that the fifth and particularly the sixth season have a dip in quality um in the sixth season joel Fleischman leaves town and another doctor comes because uh, rob morrow was having contract disputes with the network <laughs> And uh, from what I understand, the the sixth season particularly uh, doesn't quite hold up. The fifth season has some high points that are as good as everything else, even if in general you're kind of feeling like this isn't quite the same show. But the sixth season, from what I've heard, it goes a bit off the rails from what you had come to love in the first five years. Uh, In its six seasons, it was nominated for over 50 Emmy Awards and it won seven, including Best Drama Series in 1992. Um, it was filmed in northern Washington, and in the opening credits, there's this moose that's wandering around this this town set <laughs> that they have, and they borrowed that moose from Washington State University. I don't know what Washington State University was doing with the moose, but <laughs> they let them use it. <laughs> um, and the series was given... Consecutive Peabody Awards, which is for like excellence in presenting humanity on in media, uh, in ninety one and ninety two, and this is for quote uh, the show's depiction in a comedic and often poetic way of the cultural clash between a transplanted New York City doctor and the townspeople of fictional Sicilia, Alaska, and its stories of people of different backgrounds and experiences clashing, but who ultimately strive to accept their differences and coexist. And now there's a lesson <laughs> that is still topical today. Wow. <laughs>
0: Yeah, if only, there were, if only we could talk about something appropriate today.
1: <laughs> um, the show, Northern Exposure, it was a summer test run series for CBS. It only had seven episodes in its first season and then eight in its second season. And that was not common practice at all at the time. This was one of the first shows that kind of aired out of the traditional pa- uh, fall pilot season. Um, the actress who plays Marilyn, that's Joel's receptionist, and you said you love Marilyn, right, Todd? I do. She's so funny. So she's a receptionist that, as I said, she's like a silent Greek chorus. Like her face says, there's a lot that she's thinking about. And she's like kind of cluing Joel in about some of the things that he should and shouldn't be doing. But she just sits there very stoically uh, as a receptionist in his office. But she was cast when she was seen in the waiting room for the auditions, but she was not there to audition. (laughs) She'd just given her mother a ride and she had no acting experience and wasn't even trying to be in the show.
0: Why does uh, anything like that ever happen to me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you've never been randomly cast in a show, Todd. A giant, huge, successful show that wins tons of Emmys, and no, hasn't no. happened.
1: Okay. No. Uh, in 2016, a crowdfunding. So this is new trivia. For any fans of Northern Exposure that are listening to this because you're fans, in 2016, there was a crowdfunding campaign to try and fund a revival of the series. It did not reach its goal. They wanted to raise $100,000. They didn't get that. But enough was raised that a writer has been hired to work on the project, and they are pitching it as a 10-episode series to streaming sites and to networks as well. So there is an attempt to revive Northern Exposure happening right now.
0: Before we get into the long spoiler synopsis, do you have... A short one? Or do you already do it?
1: <laughs> Sorry. I think explaining the premise of the show, I don't know that we can really do a whole lot about the episode. <laughs> Could okay. you do a short synopsis of Aurora Boyalis, A Fairy Tale
0: for grown-ups? Grownups? <laughs> uh, no. No, I don't even want to try. Uh, before we jump into the long synopsis, we just remind you to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or making any purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And especially at the holiday time... A lot of people are buying a lot of things on Amazon, and this would be a great time for you to use the link, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon, and help us out. Helps us out actually more than you might think. <laughs> it's it's totally worth it to use the link. All right, Todd, you have the long
1: summary for us. Uh, listeners, I will just say, if you want to watch Northern Exposure and you never have, it is a hard show to get a hold of. It doesn't stream anywhere. Uh, the DVDs, I think think i are they're a little pricier than most uh dvd tv sets at this point because of the music rights issues with some of the songs that they use in the series uh but if you do want to purchase those just go ahead and use the link that todd just mentioned um but uh it is a wonderful series i recommend you get your hands on it see if your local library has it if you've never watched any it's a lot of fun so todd why don't you give us the long summary of these two episodes (laughs)
2: yes
0: i
1: am gonna do my best I would. Uh, I, I guess before you get in, Aurora Borealis, A Fairy Tale for Grown Ups, is one of my favorite hours of television ever. Like, it is one of my favorite episodes of anything at any point that I've ever seen.
0: Okay. Here we go. So we have a, this prologue uh, where Chris, who is the radio DJ, he's giving this really kind of pretty poetic monologue on the radio about the full moon. So there's a big full moon. And it's kind of affecting people. They're not people aren't sleeping well and stuff. So then we get the opening credits, and then the and then the story starts. So Joel is teaching Ed about golf. Uh, Joel is the doctor from New York. Ed is the young uh, kid who wants to be a filmmaker. So he's teaching him about golf, uh, and then they find this fresh track in the in the mud, and it's huge. It's a bare a bear foot like a, it looks like a Bigfoot track <laughs> and uh like, Ed, like, not, 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 like not
2: the foot of a bear but a human that is
1: <laughs> no no shoe no sock leaving a bear footprint
0: yes right. not a bear not a bear footprint but a bear footprint
1: uh, <laughs> Todd, it's really hard to distinguish homonyms by emphasis
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I'm joking so anyway, it's a human footprint that is unshe- A barefoot. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope, not clarify anything. <laughs> uh, so Ed tells Joel that this this footprint probably belongs to Adam, who is a giant monster that looks like Frankenstein. Uh, Joel is completely incredulous. So uh then this old lady talks to uh Shelly. And the old lady, her name is Ruth Ann. Ruth Ann. So Ruth Ann talks to Shelly. Shelly is the young wife of the hauling, or, hauling of the... hauling the guy from the diner. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Ruthann is talking to Shelly, and Ruthann can't sleep uh, or eat because of this big, ever-present moon. And uh, then Maurice and Maggie... So Maurice is the, is the rich guy that's kind of a jerk, and Maggie <laughs> is the love interest of Joel, Right, uh, uh, the
1: on-again, off-again tension, they hate each other, but secretly they like each other kind yeah. of love interest.
0: So they're talking about how just kind of everything is off uh, in the town, and then the radio cuts out, and Maurice tells Ed to go tell Chris to turn the radio back on, but then Ed tells him that Chris taped the morning show early so that he could work at home. So now Maurice is really angry, and he drives out to Chris's place, uh, where Chris's building a, a sculpture a metal sculpture of the aurora borealis uh out of out of metal scrap metal <laughs> yeah and he says he wants to finish it before the northern lights are at their peak and then this guy rides in on his motorcycle into town and he's lost and ed helps him out and notices that he's black he says you're <laughs> black <laughs> like he's never seen a black person before uh, uh, oh, he says. Uh, he, the guy says, "Haven't you ever seen a black person?" And he says, "Yeah, we had one black logger once, but he left because he didn't like drinking beer and fighting." <laughs> um. So now Joel goes into the store. This is Ruth Ann's store, I think. Yes. And asks for a bunch of small, just you know, like household items. Uh, but he includes in his in his list of things that he wants to buy an alarm system, and she says, "Are you worried about Adam?" And he's like. No, no, you know, not really. And uh, she says she doesn't know what's out there, but people blame all the bad things that happen in town on Adam and that something huge w- with bare feet broke into her friend's house and stole her – Or was it her house or her friend's house? I think it was her friend's house. And stole her and art and her Bible. Her family and, Bible. <laughs> and now Joel is he's looking pretty scared. So now back at the diner, the motorcyclist – is getting a meal, and Shelley is uh, waiting on his table, and uh, Hall, Halling and Chris are shooting the breeze, and then Shelley asks Chris, "What what was it that he'd been saying about Jung and the collective unconscious?" Uh, she thinks it's a band, <laughs> and, and he tells her, so "This is
1: going back to his morning show when he was doing his monologue about the moon. He talked about Jung and the collective yep. unconscious.
0: So he says that he'll be reading excerpts from Jung all week." And then the motorcyclist asks if that was Chris on the radio. And he tells the group that he's been having strange dreams lately. And Shelly says she has as well. And then the motorcyclist uh, tells them uh, that one day, he says, one day you're living in Portland and you have this dream. At least you think it's a dream, but you're not sure. And you buy a motorcycle and you start driving north until you find this city, this town called uh, Sicily, Alaska. He asks Chris if he knows what that's like. And Chris says, yes, like completely seriously. <laughs> he hmm. says, yes, I know exactly what that's like. And there's kind of some connection between them. So now Maggie helps Joel install the lock on his door uh, or a series of <laughs> was like eight different locks on the door. Uh, she says that she doesn't believe in Adam and she, uh, he tells her to look him in the eyes and tell him that Adam doesn't exist. And she won't do it, but she says she really doesn't believe that he exists. But she won't look him in the eyes and say it. So then Joel, Joel goes out to make a house call to Ranger Burns, who lives way out in the boonies. He, he watches four forest fires. He's up in the in the tower. And he's, he's so weird and lonely. And uh, they climb up in the watchtower, and Joel asks Burns if he's ever seen – he says, have you ever seen anything unusual, like big and – green and burns tells him i see lots of trees <laughs> and then and then burns has uh he just he, i don't know he has terrible migraines he's just terribly terribly lonely uh now chris and the, the motorcyclist whose name is bernard they're checking out the metal aurora borealis and their their minds are like completely completely in sync like they have telepathy and Bernard says that he wants to help Chris finish the, the, the sculpture. So now Joel is driving back from the ranger station, and his truck breaks down. And he's in the middle of the woods, and it's dark. It's, he's totally scared, but he's trying not to panic. And he gets out, and he yells and yells for ranger burns. Uh, but then a wolf howls, and he freaks out, and he gets back in his truck. So now Bernard and Chris and Holly and Maggie are playing bridge. And Bernard and Chris are totally in sync, like they can read each other's minds. Back in the truck, Joel is trying to sleep, but the forest is really loud and it's making him scared. Uh, back at the bridge game, Bernard and Holly just crush Bernard and Chris uh, crush Maggie and Holling uh, in this game, and then they simultaneously decide that they want to go back and work on the Aurora Borealis sculpture. Uh, now back to Joel in the truck, uh, some guy with a big beard and a and a beanie cap comes and steals something out of Joel's truck. Uh, and Joel's just so scared. And he says, come back. just You can have anything. Just don't leave me alone. So then he come, then the guy comes back, and he tells Joel to get out of his truck. So Joel follows him into the woods, and they go to this lonely cabin. And Joel's trying to make small talk. Like but shack the shack
1: cabin. Like it's very yeah. tiny.
0: And, and Joel's trying to make small talk because he's, he's kind of nervous. He doesn't know who this guy is. And the guy just tells him to shut up. He doesn't like people. <laughs> Uh, and Joel notices that the cabin is full of cookbooks. And then, and then this guy says like, don't you get it? He says, uh, I am Adam. And Joel, Joel totally doesn't believe him, but then he kind of looks at him and he realizes he's big and hairy and he's, he's walking around barefoot and he realizes this really is Adam. So this is the Adam, uh, this, the mythological creature.
2: <laughs> now you, you don't we mean like we the biblical Adam.
0: <laughs> no 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 it's just uh yeah, like, like, like just like
2: to this, clarify like this is, bigfoot was yeah this adam. is this is the adam that yeah. he was talking about ed, but it but it's not like yeah. adam from the bible No, it's, it's, like, it's just a guy.
1: It, yeah but it's the one that ed chigliak thought was like a bigfoot and yeah, as they said was responsible for all the weird things that happened in town
0: yeah it's just a guy i mean we totally could have talked about him on our halloween draft but we didn't <laughs> <laughs> so so back at the aurora sculpture bernard tells chris that he hasn't slept since five days ago when he left portland and then Chris tells him that he started the, the, the sculpture five days ago, and it's this crazy coincidence. And then Bernard tells Chris that his father was a truck driver and an insomniac. And Chris tells Bernard that his father wasn't ever home uh, very often either, that he would be gone weeks at a time because he sold greeting cards. And then Bernard says he doesn't want to sleep because then he will have to wake up and all of this will be like it never happened. And Chris tells Bernard uh, that Jung said that the dreams, our dreams, are the key to our unconscious fears and desires. Or maybe it was Vincent Price. (laughs) (laughs) Then back in Adam's cabin, it's like a five-star restaurant. And Adam is this amazing chef. And he mentions (laughs) that he was a POW in Nam and Joel tells him that this is this place is like a restaurant that he used to know in New York and Adam kind of goes ballistic <laughs> and it turns out that the head chef of that restaurant in New York was in cooking school with Adam this is another just kind of crazy coincidence so it's still yeah. Adam's oh, recipe
1: it's still Adam's <laughs> yeah, recipe adam has yeah. been bitter about this like he's like slamming his fist and yelling
0: <laughs> so Chris and Bernard uh, they go to bed in Chris's trailer and and Chris tells Bernard, "Just take a deep breath." <laughs> but then he looks over, and Bernard is already completely uh, asleep. So then Chris drops off, and he dreams, and he dreams he's a little kid, and he runs out to give some tennis balls to his father, who's in inside of this big semi truck. And and then when Chris gets in the truck, he's an adult, and Bernard is in there too, and he's he's dressed in like clothes from the seventies, and he's got this kind of <laughs> afro. <laughs> uh and so they each blame each other for invading their dream they're like hey what are you doing in my dream And he says no this is my dream and then they look over to the to the man who's driving the truck who is supposedly their father and it's carl jung (laughs) and he he tells them that while he knows a lot about the collective unconscious he doesn't know how to drive and then the truck crashes and bernard and chris wake up simultaneously from their dreams uh they're freaked out they go outside for a smoke and Bernard, bernard asks chris what he thinks the northern lights are to which chris responds well, this is just my guess. But I think that high speed electrons and protons from the sun are trapped in the Van Allen radiation belt, then they're channeled through the polar regions by the Earth's magnetic field where they collide with other particles and create a brilliant luminosity. <laughs>
1: I love Chris. He is Which is
0: just awesome.
1: He is one of my favorite characters. If we did <laughs> our own like we always make our guests do our like you get three to five fictional characters for a dinner party, Chris would be on my list. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. So now we're back at the cabin uh with Joel and Adam, and Adam is super grumpy, but he's giving Joel cooking lessons. <laughs> he's showing him how to hold the spoon and but he's
1: getting angry with him, but like everything Joel does infuriates him, but Adam can't help himself but try and make Joel do it perfectly.
2: Yes. <laughs> he he is the angriest compulsive teacher. <laughs> yes.
0: It's uh it, there's a total um hell's kitchen kind of vibe from him. Yeah. So when he wakes up in the morning, uh, when Joel wakes up in the morning, Adam is gone, and Joel makes his way back to the truck and it starts. So Adam has fixed his truck, and and then we see all the townspeople admiring the Aurora Borealis sculpture, which is now complete. Uh, but Maurice, he doesn't he doesn't really get it. Like he he's he's totally confused by this sculpture. <laughs> so back in town, Joel barges into the diner, and he tries to convince everyone that he's met Adam, and nobody believes him. And then Bernard and Chris continue to note the incredible similarities in their lives until they finally each pull out a picture of their father, only to find out that he is the same man. (laughs) Uh, So they're brothers. Um, And then Joel asks Maggie, and I I mean, we should should note that Chris is not black, and (laughs) Bernard is black. <laughs> and what is Bernard? What, Chris says something like, say, I imagined you. Daddy was a traveling man. <laughs> yeah, Daddy so, was a traveling man. So, and so then they're half
2: brothers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So and, the dad
1: had family in two different states <laughs> West Virginia and uh, Oregon, I think.
0: Chris says something. What is Chris? Chris says, like, I, I've imagined you since something, like since I was a kid. And then Bernard says, I always imagined you were black. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then Joel asks Maggie if she would believe him about Adam if he presented uh, her, if he introduced her to, to him. And she says, forget about it. Now Chris and Bernard have this uh, final moment looking at the, uh, the Aurora Borealis, and then Bernard gets back on his bike and he rides away. And so got to um, go back
1: because he's, he's a tax auditor, I think. Yeah, he works for the IRS. Yeah, he's got to go back to, to Portland.
0: So now Maggie and Ed and Joel are all out in the woods, and it's night. And they're looking for Adam's cabin. And they get back to where that it was, but it's just kind of an empty shell. Like there's nothing there. And they're all just about ready to chalk it up to a dream. But then Ed finds a garlic press on the ground. And Joel is ecstatic because this is proof that he really did meet Adam. And the Adam is a cook. And finally, as we listen to Louis Armstrong croon "Moon River," Maurice Louis at Armstrong. The, you can call him Louis Armstrong or Louis Armstrong. I've never heard it said Louis. Um,
1: I, I, I'm not saying it wrong. I've just never heard it that way. It, yes, uh,
0: you, it, it's you can say it either way. All right. Well, <laughs> I concede the point. So we listen to Louis Armstrong croon "Moon Louis. River." <clears throat> And Maurice is staring at the Aurora Borealis lights and then the sculpture. And it's just this great moment where he kind of thinks he gets it, and then he's not quite sure, and then he thinks he gets it, and then he's not quite sure, and then he walks away at the end.
1: Oh, such a great hour of television. I know that sounded insane, <laughs> listener, listeners. It's it, so it's, weird. But it, it works. Something about it works so yeah, well.
0: It's really good. So now we're into season four, episode twenty-one. So called this is
1: the big feast. It, it's several years, uh, like it's it's years on. And the biggest change, I think, before you read this, is in those intervening years, the townspeople come to know Adam, and he actually gets married to a woman named Eve. <laughs> 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 Chris performs the wedding in an episode because Chris uh, did a mail-in for the back of a Rolling Stones magazine to become. A I think priest. it was a, min- a minister of the the Church of Beauty and Life or something like that. <laughs>
0: so they're married and they have a baby yes. and,
1: and eve- well and, okay adam is like you said he's this big bear of a man he's always unshaven his hair is crazy he's always wearing this snow
0: hat you kind of looks like one of the geico guys like the geico cavemen guys
1: <laughs> yes but eve is a hypochondriac who is obsessed with cleanliness and order and <laughs> <laughs> and is very fastidious about everything and, and she adam has, like, never changes like-
0: she like uh I mean I don't know if Google existed then but <laughs> she's always researching like crazy diseases and she thinks that she has them or that the baby has them or something. So here we go. Uh Joel finds an invitation. So Joel walks into the into the doctor's office and Marilyn is there. Marilyn is the receptionist and she hardly ever says anything. Uh and Joel notices that she has an invitation. Uh, for a party that Maurice is throwing for the town to celebrate 25 years of his communications company. And then Joel looks for his own invitation and realizes he didn't get one. Uh, but he he, he kind of pretends he doesn't care, but you can tell that he does. <laughs> uh, so now we see Maurice preparing this huge party, and this is a very, very expensive party. Just the cake cost $10,000. But there is a crisis. Because the beef... For the demi has been sold to a higher bidder in Japan, uh, and without forty head of cattle to boil down to a teacup, to get just the essence of of the beef, the party will be completely ruined. And there are only six cows in in Sicily. <laughs> Yes,
1: so you listeners, in case you're wondering, Maurice is very much into conspicuous consumption. <laughs> oh yeah. This is a party he's throwing for himself to show off his own wealth to everyone in the town, <laughs> but he is inviting everyone to yeah, it. Yes. Except for Joel.
0: <laughs> so the French, the French chef, whose name is Frenchie tells Maurice that there is no well, way. I that don't know if that's happen.
1: his name or if that's just, uh, Maurice's, uh, um,
0: Maurice calls him.
1: Yeah. And Maurice is a bigot. <laughs> and uh, he'd use a lot of stereotypes in his descriptions of anyone. Yes.
0: So he calls the French chef Frenchie, and Frenchie says, There is no way that we're going to have demi-glace. And Maurice, just kind of stern-faced, says, I will, you will have your beef. We will make a demi-glace. So now Joel goes to the post office to just check and see if maybe his invitation to the party was lost, and it wasn't. And what's her name? Ruth Ann? Ruth Ann, yeah. Ruth Ann, she's she's the also the post woman, I guess, yeah. and post she tells mistress him
1: mistress for the town. Post. Is that what a postmaster post?
0: Yes, postmistress. Okay, and she tells him that the this party is going to be the best with mountains of caviar, fifty dollars an ounce caviar. Uh, in the diner, Ed, Shelley, and Holling are admiring their invitations, and in walks Joel, and he's feeling totally left out. They tell him that last time. Uh, Maurice brought the entire Barnum and Bailey Circus uh, for a for a party that he had on another occasion. He brought the Blue Angels; <laughs> they flew over the town. And as they're talking about this, Joel is just feeling worse and worse because everyone is invited except for him, and he thinks that that he has not been invited because he told the IRS that. The it, What is it? The suburban? There was a suburban. Oh, that, the, that
1: Maurice was claiming uh, a workplace injury from shoveling snow. And I think he said that. I've never seen that man lift a snow shovel in my life. Yeah, something <laughs> like
0: that. So um, so now Shelly and Maggie are having this conversation about how expensive everything is. Uh, because Maggie has just gone to Anchorage for supplies, including um, an incredibly expensive bottle of wine. And when Maggie leaves, Shelly accidentally breaks the bottle and the wine just spills all over the room. And now back in the diner, um, so Shelly goes back in the diner and she's looking for some booze that she can can maybe try to replace this. Just pour it into the wine bottle. (laughs) So the wine bottle broke, like the bottom broke off in one piece
1: of glass, like the very base of the wine bottle. So she's thinking, I can just pour in some liquid, glue this glass back on, and we'll all be
0: good. It's a... It's a bottle of 1929, what is it? Chateau Latour or something?
1: That sounds right to me.
0: Uh anyway, in it... my
1: wine connoisseurship, Todd, I think so... you nailed
0: that. So, um, back in the kitchen. Listeners,
2: none of us none of us drank. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know. So we, back if in we the kitchen... don't know anything about wine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so back in the kitchen, Maurice is organizing everything. And then Adam, yes, Adam from the from the woods. He walks in and attacks the French chef like physically attacks him and uh, it turns out that the, friend, that the chef is a former student of Adam's who stole his recipe for pomme anglaise <laughs> and, uh, and Adam is furious so while he's chewing out the, the other chef he smells the demi-glace and all of a sudden his demeanor completely changes and he, com- he totally takes charge of the kitchen and everyone defers to him and his authority because he's the best Uh, So now back at the diner uh, Joel runs into Eve who is Adam's wife and she has a baby and uh, Joel sits down at the bar next to Marilyn and Marilyn just stares at him and they they have this amazing conversation in which Marilyn says nothing and Joel says everything Uh, he just talks and talks about how not upset he is about not being invited to the party um, and then Shelly comes over and asks him how much of an expensive bottle of wine would cost. And in their conversation, it comes out that uh, that she's she's asking about this 1929 bottle of vintage wine. But she's asking like, and, what, $10, 20 <laughs> Yeah. And he says uh, that's probably at least a five dollars or $6,000 bottle of wine. And she just is mortified that she's broken this thing. So now back at the catch, at the kitchen, Adam is telling everyone about how important the demi is, and he reminds them that the room must be kept warm because otherwise it would poach, and it's very, it's very Hell's Kitchen at this point. Uh, and now at the doctor's office, Joel is checking out Eve's baby, and Eve is super worried that the baby isn't well, but Joel assures her uh, that he is fine. So <laughs> Maurice needs medical supplies because there is going to be a lot of drinking <laughs> going on at this party. And Joel just goes ballistic on Maurice, and uh, and he tells him he's a vindictive and cold man. And Maurice says, no, I invited you to my party. And he, 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 he convinces uh, Joel that he really did. He says Maggie should have had the invitation. So now Joel goes to Maggie, and he chews her out and tells her she's crossed the line. She tells him that she did deliver the invitation, and he leaves. He's really mad. Uh, and he tells her, it's because I'm on your mind and your old boyfriend left and so now you're thinking about me. And she says, I never think about you at all, even though it's obvious that they both think about each other quite quite often. Um, so then we go back in the freezer and Adam is trying to choose a side of beef while Maurice just talks and talks and talks about kind of just man-like man talk. <laughs> kind of Donald Trump-like bo- boisterous man talk. <laughs> There's a lot of Uh, Donald Trump
1: in in Maurice.
0: Yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) So in the diner, Eve tells Shelly that she should get her thyroid checked. And then Shelly just completely spills the beans about the wine. And she tells her – so Eve tells Shelly, just put the label on another bottle and everything will be okay. Um, Now we're back in the kitchen and Maurice is inspecting everything and the party is fast approaching. He's doing this kind of drill sergeant routine. Now it's late at night and we're in the diner. And Eve is helping Shelly concoct a substitute for the 29 Chateau Latour. And she is a total expert. This is like a chemist's lab. And she's adding all kinds of color and texture and flavor. And she puts in a little bit of, like, peat moss to give it. (laughs) The earthy undertone. The earthy undertones. And it's really, I love this scene. Uh, And now the party's on. And Shelly and Holling show up. And she's got the the bottle of wine, the, the bottle of fake wine under this big fur coat and uh the, but the party is just lavish and uh everyone's having a great time we see all these funny interactions between different people from the town uh joel apologizes to maggie for losing his temper with her and she's surprised at this kind of act of humility on his part uh, then maurice leads adam and joel to the wine cellar so that he can uh, show off his wine collection and Shelley just has enough time to drop off the fake bottle and then she hides and just as about their, the, just as they're about to come upon her, uh, somebody comes and says that Marilyn is sick, and she's sick because she's eaten uh, some bad fish, and so Maurice is incensed at the at the chef for having ruined the fish, and uh, and he fires him, and then Adam takes over everything and he saves the day. He goes in the pantry. <laughs> He goes in the pantry and just creates this culinary masterpiece out of nothing. And, uh, and then Eve tells Adam uh, that she wants him to check the baby. He doesn't want to. She finally convinces him, and he leaves. Um, Chris then gives a toast, and it goes like this. And I'm just going to read this because I think it's important to our conversation, probably, that we're going to have about this. So the, the toast goes like this. Minifield, so Minifield is Maurice our generous host, friend, and employer. I'm sure I join everyone here in saying thank you for these very fine, fine eats and drinks. You are a real American. You are an ex-Marine, an astronaut. You are America. You're rich, you're rapacious, Your progress without a conscience paving everything in its path. You're 5% of the Earth's population yet consuming 25% of the Earth's natural resources. You pay a lot of taxes, you do a lot of charity work, most of it's tax-deductible, but your heart's in the right place. One thing's for certain, chief, you have impeccable taste in the booze. (laughs) (laughs) And then the decorator, whose name I do not remember. Do you remember the decorator's name? I I
1: cannot remember his name, but they're like, in terms of pop culture, historically significant, uh, he's, he's gay, and he and his husband in Alaska are the first gay marriage in television history. Okay.
0: So then he stands up and he says this. One thing you can count on, there's no hidden agenda with this man. Maurice Minnefield is not going to stab you in the back. No, you're going to see him plunge that dagger right into your belly, pull it up, and twist and twist until your guts spill right out onto your shoes. Maurice, my friend, you're a homophobe and a bigot, but you have a truly marvelous aesthetic and a truly superb collection of Gershwin LPs. <laughs> And Maurice and, is smiling through all of this. He's oh, he's like, just grinning like ear to ear, so proud of this. Yeah. And uh, as a token of gratitude, Maurice offers Adam the first taste of the twenty-nine Latour wine, <laughs> and he tastes it carefully, like uh, as a, only a true, like master wine connoisseur can. He swish, swishes. Small yay. Yeah, swishes it around in his mouth, and he says, "It's delicious." And then Marie says to make sure everyone gets a taste and he tells everyone, keep pulling the corks. Cheers. The end.
1: Great synopsis, Todd, of uh, shows that have a lot going on.
0: <laughs> it's busy. It's definitely a busy show.
1: Yes. Uh, but I think you did a really good job of uh, encapsulating these, these two hours, which I think are both fine hours of television and certainly fit our bill for, for talking about great, uh, great stories. But, Todd, this is your first exposure. If we're going to talk about great characters, what characters stood out to you in Northern Exposure? Oh,
0: man. Well, I really thought that this was going to be a story about Joel, and it kind of is. And especially in the pilot and those early episodes, there's mm-hmm. a huge focus on Joel. And I, I do think that he is a really interesting character. It's, it's fascinating to see the, the big city kid from New York show up in this really, really tiny Alaska town um gosh I I, think- I I do before we move on from joel i want to give a shout out to rob morrow
1: i think he does a great job of playing the simultaneous uh like the the confidence or or the arrogance of coming from a big town uh-huh. but also the discomfort and the, i don't know what i'm getting into
2: <laughs> like yeah.
1: that, i think that's a hard mix to nail of being kind of the, you know, cocksure about life and and your place in the universe and this kind of sense of superiority, but also playing the fish out of water that doesn't understand exactly what he's gotten himself into. And it's his his the way his eyes dart around, the way he delivers his lines. He does a really good job of playing that.
0: And he's really, I mean, he's committed to this. When he goes crazy, like when he gets mad or scared or uh he he really goes all out. I mean it's a it's a good it's good acting. I would say across the board here. I really mm-hmm. love Ed. I think Ed is hilarious. Every time he's on screen I just laugh. Uh and Marilyn um I like Chris a lot. So Chris is my favorite character. I want to read one of
1: his monologues from I think it's from the second episode of the series. So he he gets to deliver. most wonderful monologues because he's the radio dj and so a lot of episodes open with him just talking over the airwaves as we get a montage of what people are doing early in the morning and they're all listening to this because it's the only radio station um so this is uh from an episode called brains know how and native intelligence Uh, i think it's the second episode of the series so you probably watched this one todd Uh and chris says it was a day not unlike any other day in the summer of 1976 i a boy 15 and my oldest and dearest friend dickie heath having just stolen a car from the parking lot of a shop easy and finding ourselves with nothing much to do, entered a house on Fox Hill lane while Dickie rifled upstairs for valuables. I entered the sitting room. while why while pocketing a gold leaf pen and a silver humidor came across the book, that, ha- that completely and irrevocably changed my life. So this morning, Chris in the morning is going to dispense with the weather and traffic report and the local news and get down with the complete works of Walt Whitman. <laughs> 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 he starts reading poetry from Walt Whitman. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, I mean, that's such a monologue to have to deliver, but it reveals so much of uh, some of the complexity that there's that is there within Chris. And I think most of these characters in Northern Exposure get similar... Uh, complexity or or things that feel contradictory but the actors and the writing make it work yes so chris is this very intellectual philosopher who is also an ex-con and it turns out at a certain point in in the series you find out he's a con on the run (laughs) has a warrant for his arrest in west virginia (laughs) um and uh like another character with that is maurice who is this very like we said he he's very much into the ostentatious ostentatious displays of his wealth and demonstrating his superiority, but there's also this underlying neediness that uh-huh. is very much a reason for him to be doing that, that we don't often think about. Uh, and as the monologue says, he's a homophobe, but he also has the largest... <laughs> collection of Broadway show tunes of anyone in Alaska it seems. Uh there's an episode where he kicks Chris off the air for re- well it's that one where he, Chris uh he kicks Chris off the air for reading Walt Whitman because he mentions that Walt Whitman was uh you know experimented with homosexuality and uh Maurice uh says like you can't talk about that on my air and then when he takes over the show all he does is play Broadway show <laughs> okay. tunes. So there's this, you know, these these odd contradictions uh, that we see in a lot of these characters, but somehow it all works. And each of these characters feels uh, real and that there's a depth to them, even as the tone of the show sometimes heads into unexpected directions that are are certainly less real.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I think one of the things that makes it rich is that contradiction and you have... Um, you know, you have the big city and the small town, but even inside of the small town, you have intellectuals and you have...
1: You have Ed, who is Native American. Uh, he was raised by his tribe. Like, he doesn't have, have parents, but he is the biggest cinephile. Uh, he loves to talk about Woody Allen and, uh-huh. uh, you know, the great directors. And he'll he'll get into the art of filmmaking. I think there's episodes where he talks about being pen pals with
0: Martin Scorsese <laughs> and discussing film. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's uh, and they're all just uh, like Maggie. Maggie really reminds me of um Sally from Cars, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like really smart and I mean I think there is kind of a cars would be oh, I had never
1: thought about it but Cars definitely overlays Doesn't pretty it? pretty well onto this, you know, the big city car, the big city doctor, <laughs> the, yep. the small town. And Maggie or, or Maggie and Sally are both uh not natives in these towns. And right. so Uh, our transplants, you know, our fish out of water are kind of feel a connection with, with Maggie and Sally in both those.
0: Yeah. I guess
1: that's before we dig in some more, maybe into the the series and the, and uh, the characters. One question I want to talk about is why do these fish out of water stories always, I I mean, not always, but often seem to work like that is a trope that gets used very regularly. What do you think it is about fish out of water stories that interest us as, and by us, I mean, but you know, viewers and readers, of of media
0: it's interesting that we call it uh fish out of water stories because i mean you could certainly take a kind of a hero's journey angle on this and in that case it's like it's not a fish out of water but it's in the belly of the whale right like it's it's in it's it's the it's the the land what (laughs) the land lover in the water right like you're you're tossed into the deep end uh and that's I think that's what's going on here is it's just, it's such a completely foreign world. Um, but that's where growth takes place (laughs) when you're out of your comfort zone and you're in, uh, a place that, you know, at, at, at the, at the easy end of the scale is just odd. Um, and at the far end of the scale is dangerous. And I think for Joel, especially, uh, Sicily is both of those things
1: <laughs> right like uh, sometimes, in the it's odd, and sometimes
0: it's terrifying
1: yeah he he buys all those locks for his door because there's this thing that he doesn't understand that is part of this world and so he has Maggie come and install a half dozen locks because uh, he's feeling the danger but then there's other times where he's just bemused and confused by mm-hmm. by what he sees going on around him um, and I think it's both for the character growth of someone like Joel like we we enjoy following the character arc that these stories often tell where uh, like i said a nod to the hero's journey which chris would definitely approve of because he quotes Jung quite a lot <laughs> in, in the series um we enjoy seeing that character arc of them like still retaining what they loved about their old world but learning things that they would not have known uh sure. where they were from but i think it's also for viewers we like to follow um that journey and you know the person yeah, like you said, the show feels like it should be about Joel, especially early on. When we follow them, they're like our touchstone. Like most of America probably understands New York City, even if it's only through media. We understand what New York City is about. We don't have as much media, uh, media that is exploring small-town Alaska. And right. so he's our touchstone that allows us to go in and see this particular version of... Through,
0: through his eyes, yeah. yeah. Well, when we see it through his eyes and his eyes, what you're saying is his eyes are ours. Mm-hmm. They're standing for ours. Yeah, absolutely. He becomes, he becomes this lens through which we see this this crazy, crazy town. And it's, uh,
1: you know, those emotions of curiosity and lack of understanding, but also fear. I think all those are things that w- we all experience when we're in the unknown. Uh, you know, whether it's small town Alaska or, uh, you know, just the, you're in a city for the first time. Like all that, I think, is a universal feeling, even if the specificity of northern exposure is not.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I like that.
1: Let's talk a little bit about magical realism. <laughs> okay. Uh, like I said, there's there's a great article that kind of gets into this. Um, on uh, uh let's see, it's on RogerEbert. Uh, but it's not written by Roger Ebert. It mentions that there's a later episode of the series Todd that uh, digs, like like it's an hour long, um. Love letter to, uh, what's the guy's full name? Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And this article talking, like the title, which is Magical Realism, talks a little bit about what that is. But Todd, if you were going to try and define magical realism for our audience, (laughs) like what is magical realism? Because those two terms do not belong together, (laughs) right?
0: So (laughs) magic realism is... Uh, so we, we all understand the concept of, fan, of, of like realism, so realism would be something like Dickens or Jane Austen, or right? These are just this is the, the world
1: versions of the world we see around
0: us. The world that we know. Uh, and then we have fantasy, which would be something like "The Lord of the Rings," or Harry Potter," in which uh, it's clearly recognizable that this is not our world. And even in something like Harry Potter, uh, there are, like It's you know, set it, in it, our world initially, maps, but
1: clearly you're going to a different place.
0: It maps onto our world, uh, but even people like Muggles in Harry Potter, if they come across magic, their minds are completely blown, right? <laughs> like, there's a reason why wizards uh, want to keep magic hidden, and, and it's because regular humans can't handle it. Uh, Magic realism is uh, stories or paintings or whatever, art, that's set in a world that we recognize as our own. And there are magical elements in the world, but they're accepted as, like, day-to-day. And uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is probably the most famous uh, magic realist. And, you know, in 100 Years of Solitude... For example, there's a, a lady and she has a baby and he's born with a pig's tail, like a, a pig's tail coming out of his bottom,
1: <laughs> like Dudley and, and Harry Potter.
0: Yeah, <laughs> after, and all of the, and the people in the town are just like, man, what did you do to have a baby with a pig's tail? You know, like, <laughs> like you must have done something really messed up. Uh, it's not like, whoa, my goodness, this is like our whole world has been changed. It's just this kind of. Uh, matter-of-fact acceptance that inexplicable magical things happen in the world and they happen and and people will go huh that's interesting and they kind of move on so the perfect example of this from northern exposure is like the the mental um this kind of telepathy and uh, sh- sharing of <laughs> thoughts between bernard and chris And how they recognize that it's weird, and they're like, huh, that's really weird. But then they just kind of move on. There's a a really matter-of-fact attitude towards magic Mm -hmm. and magical realism. How have I done with that?
1: I think that was great. Uh, And I was going to say, this show, I think, definitely avoids uh, maybe a danger that could have happened with... um being set in Alaska and having a large percentage of the cast being Native American they could have exoticized it by making all the magical stuff be coming from the Native Americans um but by saying in this whole universe of Sicily Alaska magical realism is just what is it's not coming just from one group that's being othered and separated. Like our first real exposure to it, like you said, is Chris and his brother Bernard from Portland. (laughs) his half brother Bernard uh, from Portland. And a lot of it does. uh, I I think every character probably has these moments and sometimes the whole town gets caught up in these things. Like uh, I remember I, I haven't watched most of these episodes in years. Like I watched the same episodes you did in prep for this, for this podcast, but most of them I probably haven't watched since before I was married. Um, but I do remember like there's one episode where weird things start happening, and everyone just says, "Well, it's just gonna keep going until the ice cracks. <laughs> like it's in the dead of winter. <laughs> and until the ice cracks, things get weird. People start acting strange. They have strange impulses that they need to act on. But once the ice cracks, everything re- returns to normal, and you just don't talk about whatever <laughs> whatever was going on uh, until the ice cracked. And so it's it's just the tone for the series. And I think it allows for a lot of really interesting, narrative choices that strict realism doesn't allow, but it also allows for some really interesting commentary about life that high fantasy doesn't naturally allow either.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's not like the best way of telling stories. It's just a way of telling stories. Um, It's particularly popular and important in Latin America, but certainly not. uh, They don't have a a monopoly on magic realism. Um, Nor did they, really invented Uh, it exists before (laughs) uh before then um the 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 episode i was reading a plot summary of the episode that's the gabriel garcia marquez episode Mm -hmm. and apparently everybody uh their dreams are swapped in the town (laughs) So people are sharing each other. So, you know, like Maggie will have Maurice's dreams and Maurice will have Maggie's dreams. (laughs) And then for Fleischman, for Joel to be able to interpret them, he has to talk to them both at the same time to to help them interpret their dreams. It sounds really cool.
1: Yeah. Um, And I I think for this show to have, um, you know, references to Marquez or others, that's definitely what they're building through characters like Chris but also I mean everyone in this show it's kind of like um Gilmore Girls I think Gilmore Girls ha- actually feels a bit like Northern Exposure like the the references to other things is pretty rapid fire in yeah. the show um both in terms of inspiring the kinds of stories that are being told but also the characters are all very well read <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh are in, and are able to make those references um on a Northern Exposure exposure Wikia page about chris i was just looking at this that's where i found that quote that i read earlier Um, Mm -hmm. but it has a list of things that chris quotes at various points in the series and he will just drop most of these like like this is in his head at all times like as a character he's not like picking up something and quoting it directly he's just you know dropping references and he quotes Uh, Renaissance uh, and other poems. He quotes Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth, Shakespeare's The Tempest, Carl Jung, multiple times in multiple works of Jung, Voltaire, Stephen Hawking, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Kant, Walt Whitman, Nietzsche, (laughs) Tolstoy, Maurice Sendak, (laughs) Baudelaire, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Alex de Tocqueville, uh, Jack London. It's Alexis de Tocqueville. Alexis. Sorry. Alexis de Tocqueville. You're right. Sorry about that. Uh... Let's see, Herman Melville, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, Marquez, E.B. White, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell together. <laughs> Proust, or Proust, which one is that? I always Proust. get that one. Proust. Proust yeah. uh, Lear, I would have mispronounced that one. Edward Lear. Uh, Thoreau. <laughs> I, I mean, the list is going on and on. Like, I'm, I'm maybe three quarters of the way through it. Thomas Paine, Wordsworth Thoreau, uh, Frost, and Rice. <laughs> <laughs> and Shakespeare. Um, and I just love the idea of both presenting these small town characters that are often in popular culture presented as um, unintellectual and uh, uneducated um, and that everyone is kind of conversant in this high culture stuff, but doing it in this pop culture setting uh, where if you, if you as a viewer are conversant in those things, maybe you get some of the jokes or a few of the references at a deeper level, but it's still kind of entertaining to see Chris, this ex-con radio DJ, just be dropping Shakespeare quotes and thorough quotes. Um, and you can enjoy that no matter how well versed you are in those things. I think.
0: Yes, I agree. (laughs) I concur. Uh, I have one thing that I want to talk about. I know we're getting short on time. Are we okay? Yeah, we're good. Okay. So this character of Maurice and the party and these final, these two final toasts to Maurice Um, what do you, what do you make of
1: what's going on there? I mean, it is impossible for me to watch this today in the age of Donald Trump and see it the same way I saw it the first time I watched that episode,
0: right? So some people, some people may be watching this far into the future. Today is November 11th.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So days after Donald Trump was became our president, no, it's elect. November
0: tenth. It's November tenth. Donald Trump was elected president two days ago, and the way Maurice. Uh, wants, uh, I mean, like I
1: I already kind of said, there's a neediness about him, but there's also this this show offishness about him. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's this desire to be loved by everyone, but also for everyone to know that he's better (laughs) and superior to them. Uh, You know, in terms of what he views in his moral worldview, in terms of his economic standing, uh, in terms of his masculinity, he wants there to be no doubt that he is the prime of all these things. Uh, and when these speeches are said about him, in some ways it's confirming in his mind the best version of what it is to be an American male, I think.
0: He's just a total narcissist. Yes. But a needy narcissist.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and so we get these quotes that are or these toasts that are on the face of them criticisms, but he sees them as identifying Again, what is like the best version of American American manhood?
0: Yeah. So, it's clear. I, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how clear it is, but all of the people in the town. So he he makes this huge party. Everyone's excited to be there, and they and they are there. And I mean, I just that that final final toast by the decorator. <laughs> Where
1: he says, you, you'll never stab anyone in the back.
0: <laughs> yeah, one one thing you can count on. There's no hidden agenda with this man. Maurice Minifield is not going to stab you in the back. No, you're going to see him plunge that dagger right into your belly, pull it up, and twist and twist until your guts spill right out onto your shoes. Maurice, my dear friend, you're a homophobe and a bigot, but you have a truly marvelous aesthetic and a truly superb collection of Gershwin LPs. <laughs> and and he, when he says that, you can tell that there is true i don't know what the word is i don't I don't know that admiration is the right word or but something like appreciation um
2: it's definitely honesty
0: yeah, it's authentic and,
2: and Maurice is honestly appreciative of what's being said <laughs> somehow yes.
0: and so I wonder as i i mean the emotions right now in our country are running really high on both sides. I'm very divided <laughs> and very divided. And I think, I think it's probably safe to say that you and I both have some pretty deep concerns yes. <laughs> about, about our current president and I'll allow it. <laughs> and, uh, I just I found it so interesting to watch this thing today and to see this little microcosm of a town.
1: And this episode is from '94. Is that right? No, it would have been.
0: It was like when Donald Trump was on uh, was on Little Rascals. <laughs> it's from about the same time period. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> or a while. Two. 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 Yes. And to see this town and to see the town work. And and to be able to look at Maurice and say, you know what, this guy has a lot of power in this town right now, and he's a jerk. But these people's lives are still moving forward, and they found some way to to like m- make it, you know. And I just, I found it so I just found it so interesting to see them all at the party, and they're all happy. <laughs> and they're working together and it doesn't take away from the fact that Maurice is a jerk and a homophobe and a bigot um and yet somehow the 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 broader story is about that this this is this town is a good place to be and these people really genuinely care about each other even i don't know if it's in spite of their differences or because of their differences or or something but there's a really rich community in the town and Maurice is part of it and that's okay. But
1: I do want to point out that like um, the toast kind of says one of like, like it's said with some bitterness or, or I don't know if it's bitterness, but it's said in a way that's clearly simultaneously like a criticism and Maurice is taking it as praise. But this is one of the things that uh, Donald Trump has been praised for is he's not politically correct. He says it like it is and he says it to your face and people found that honesty refreshing Mm-hmm. Even if the message itself is somehow, you know, should be horrifying. People say, well, he just says it. And that's something we need more of. And that's exactly what Maurice is in the show. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it comes up in the toast in a way that we've seen reflected now 20 years later uh, in in national politics. And it's, I don't know if it's to say that the show tapped into, again, like showing something real in the complexity of these characters. That uh, this man can be on the one hand very off-putting, but there is something about that rawness that it, with which he carries himself, that self-assurity that maybe other people feel he shouldn't have, but the way he carries it off, uh, makes you know, is appealing to some. Uh, you know, you're you're seeing it presented twenty years ago in a way that's just played out in national politics today. And I absolutely like I said, when, when I said we're doing northern exposure, I had no idea where we were gonna be heading <laughs> in this direction. Uh, but I, it's very, like, there's a lot of obvious parallels between Maurice and, uh, and the current president-elect of this country.
0: I just, I think it's a fascinating, it's fascinating to think about the kind of soul searching that I think is going on right now for half of our country, in which people are going, what in the world just, what in the world just happened? And, and what does this, what does this mean? Because... There is Donald Trump, you know, the guy who says it like it is, and is this kind of refreshing change from politics as usual. And too
1: polished and careful words that don't mean anything. That is all you ever get.
0: And, and there's, there's that aspect of things. And then there's this really horrifying uh, side of things in which he has no respect for anyone who's weaker than he is. And, uh, has said really terrifying things. And uh, I, I mean, I just found like yesterday, back going in my own mind, going back and forth and thinking, like, okay, this is the world that I live in now. <laughs> and I can spend the next four years feeling horrible about what has just happened, or I can f- try to find s- some kind of silver lining or some kind of hope. That this won't turn into a dumpster fire, like I you know, like I have been imagining that it that it will over the last several months. and i and I've just like almost got myself to that point where I'm like, maybe this is gonna be okay. You know, he met with President Obama. President Obama had some nice things to say, and And I'm like, well, okay, this is looking okay. And then a student shows me some text that she received from some jerk, a Hispanic student that I have. That says, you know, get the, you know what, out of my country, you whore, you know, <laughs> and, and and I'm like, nope, it's bad, <laughs> it's it's bad, and uh, and I, you know, and I look at this, I look at this episode of um, of Northern Exposure, and I'm like, no, look, they're all, they've all found a way to be together, <laughs> and and it, there's something kind of hopeful and and sweet in the way that this town has found a way to even that there's a space even for Maurice in this town. And then I'm like, is that, is that okay? Or is, (laughs) is it not okay? I don't, I don't know. We can cut all this if it's,
1: if it's, if it's but
0: I, My only
2: concern I think, is people might be turning to this for some escapism.
0: And, they might. Well, but.
2: And I think in a way what you're saying, Todd, is you're looking for the collection of Gershwin LPs. <laughs> you know, in this situation where you have, you know, a series of massive concerns and real statements against you know, a stance that a person has, but at the moment, you know you have to accept the fact that you are going to be dealing with this
1: yeah you're in a country for a while. where he is now the president for so, the 4
2: years so you know say what you have to say about it and then also look for that stack of Gershwin LPs that you can say like hey there's maybe something that's you know worth worth going to this party for
0: and i i think Maurice has a a piece of responsibility in this and that like, yes, he's a homophobe and yes, he's a bigot, but he also hired that decorator. Yes. He hired the decorator. And when they're decorating, it's not about sexuality or politics. It's about decorating. And they have these really, um, you know, like he trusts the decorator to do the decorating. And, and that's a that's a, like a, a healthy working relationship that they have there uh despite their differences this despite the fact that there's this this element I and mean, this thing hanging between them it doesn't stop them from you know, having some kind of a relationship and and i wonder is that possible you know <laughs> and and i honestly don't know I hope so. (laughs) But I hope it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I I mean, I don't have a whole lot that I can add beyond what you've said. And like I said, it it 100% changed my viewing of this to live in the current political climate versus any time I've watched that episode before. I've probably seen it a half dozen times in my life, the the Big Feast episode. Um, And I don't know that I'll be able to see it the same, but it does have absolutely a hopefulness about it and a coming together of disparate worldviews and classes and everyone coming together and yeah it's because maurice is kind of asking everyone to come kiss his rings and (laughs) and bow down to him but everyone the thing is everyone in town knows it's about that and doesn't care and they go have a good time anyway (laughs) like their their nods to maurice are um kind of superfluous to the enjoyment they're going to get out of this party
0: when when ruth ann is talking to joel and she's talking about all the money that's spent and and how kind of sickening it is just all, you know, everything that goes on and what a narcissist Maurice is. And Joel goes, so are you going? And she's like, heck yes, there's mountains of caviar. Of course I'm going. And I just, I, I, I find myself going back and forth on this where on the one hand, I want to feel hopeful and think, see, this th- th- this could work out. Maybe – Maybe there's a chance here, and then on the other hand, I'm like, I don't want to go to the party. You know? <laughs> like, I don't want to go to the party of this guy that that I'm I really, you know, am not impressed with <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Uh, but but at the same time, it's like this is the world. You know, it's like living in Sicily. This is this is the world that we live in, and uh, I admire these people for making the best of it.
1: All right. Well, on that note and good luck, producer Andrew.
2: <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. I was on, just going to uh, say the same condensing thing. i you.
1: Our rambling ending into something that will be appealing to our listeners. I appreciate all that you do, producer Andrew. Uh, But that is going to wrap up this uh, episode. Thank you for joining us. And please subscribe to the Protagonist podcast and iTunes. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. If you are a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13. So our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of length and discussion uh, focus, I guess I would say. If you like this episode, though, you might want to go back and uh, check out some of our earlier episodes that maybe have a similar theme. Uh, Our episode on Hook definitely has magical elements uh and fish out of water episodes uh or elements and that is episode number 70 and there are a number of others that maybe have a similar theme throughout uh links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com that's where you can find a list of all of our shows you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we are also on twitter and at Protagonist Pod, at Todd K Mac, at Jay Dorowski and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and we would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss to show your appreciation with a monetary donation. You can click the support link on our homepage or just go directly to patreon.com protagonist. We love our patrons. It makes it possible for us to keep doing this. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks like regular Amazon and costs you nothing, but we get a small kickback from Amazon, whenever you use protagonistpodcast.com/slash Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com/slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bam! One fake. I didn't mess up.
0: Now Maurice comes into the into the doctor's office because he needs medical supplies for the party because there's going to be a lot of drinking going on. Oh, are you guys okay there?
1: Yeah, just fine. Joseph dropped something. He made dropped a sound. onto his
0: Speaking plastic of medical
1: sender
2: cloth. Oh, I've been meaning to give that to you to take to your to what your kids. Is that?
0: Oh, that sound makes me crazy. Stop ah! it! <laughs> <Stop it! laughs>
1: Think about the upside down, Todd. No, that yeah, like...
0: the Willy. Stop that.
2: He's reading stuff. He's getting
0: a. <laughs> so so I give me the. I like put the hair up on the back of my neck. <laughs> okay.